The following is a continuation of the previous episode. Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. Dr. Dave Anderson continues with the first chapter of Hebrews. We also look back to Psalm 2 in order to see how Jesus is the perfect king. There are a lot of Hebraic references in the book of Hebrews. The possession and inheritance the Israelites long for are one and the same. They are manifestations of Christ's reward. Through Hebrews, we are given a tool to grapple with suffering and see Christ's invitation to come and participate in a higher purpose during our time on earth. Inheritance is looked at primarily in the New Testament as a reward. So when you get to this uh, word heir in Hebrews 1, you're immediately looking at the reward that Jesus got for being a faithful uh, servant during his mission on earth. Heir of all things. Now in our ring, we're moving back through whom he also made uh, the worlds. And then moving back, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person. Uh, these words speak of essence, that he has all the attributes of the Father, that he's exactly uh, the same in his divinity, in his uh, godhood, if you want to coin a word. And then we come in our ring to the upholding of all things by the word of his power, uh, his sustaining work, keeping uh, creation going, as it were. And finally says, when he had purged uh, our sins. That's the uh, one thing I uh, jumped over as we went through our two rings. We said, what child is this? And we answered that. He is the exalted one. He is... Uh, the creator. He's the very God. He's the sustainer. But he's also the purifier. Uh, that gets into not who or, I mean, the what, but it gets into who. Uh, who he is. Why did he come? What did he do? He came down to make purification for our sins. Well, uh, after doing that, it goes right back to, after purging our sins, it comes full circle back to sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, being so much better than the angels as he is by inheritance, again, reward, obtained a more excellent name than they. So you're back to his exaltation. From the moment you see sat down through inheritance, that's the last part of the ring coming full circle. So now... The support. The four, beginning verse five, picks right up on the more excellent name that he just talked about. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, when he says that, he's coming right out of Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is recognized by most evangelical scholars as a messianic psalm in which the nations of the earth uh, are raging, the kings of the earth are conspiring, this, rule, this word counsel, the rulers take counsel together, it's, it's a conspiracy. They're trying to have a one world government against the Lord's anointed, 
Again, the word anointing in Hebrew being Mashiach, and in, of course in Greek, Christos or Christ. But this conspiracy is against Jesus. And you don't have to read much news in this day and age to realize there is a conspiracy against Jesus. My, my, my. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Well, who's that? The Lord and his anointed. <clears throat> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. A quick word about prophecy. You may have heard of the double reference, the historical reference, and the prophetic reference. This was a psalm of David. Uh, honoring the coronation of his son Solomon as king. Solomon was the historical reference. Uh, for all David knew, Solomon was going to fulfill the Davidic covenant and have a kingdom that would last uh, forever, that he would be the ideal king. He did not realize during his lifetime that Solomon would lead the people into idolatry. Uh, this we know from the New Testament's use right there in Hebrews 1. Uh, the Solomon didn't fit the bill, and Israel waited and waited and waited for an ideal king to fill the bill, finally realized all they were going to do is bring in idolatry, so God got rid of the monarchy. The people then waited, and there was a building desire for a Messiah, someone who delivered them from the Romans, and before that, from the Greeks. So uh, what we have here in Hebrew is what we call uh, technically a proleptic Perfect, And all that means is he's talking about the future as though it were already accomplished. Uh, he's saying uh, a better way to translate this to get that across might be, I most surely am going to set up my king on my holy hill in Zion. Did you get that? I most assuredly, emphatically am going to set up my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he uses a tense that kind of makes it as though it's a done deal. I'm so sure that's going to happen, it's already a done deal. So I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, and here we go, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now remember folks, this is literally talking uh, in, in the historical referent about Solomon. So on his coronation day, his enthronement day, David isn't saying today I have begotten you. It's because this is adoption formula, it's reward formula, it's enthronement uh, talk, it's reigning talk. And so uh, he says, this, uh, ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Again, see, reward, inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. Now, you remember the Jews were going to go across the River Jordan and do two things. This is Deuteronomy. Go into the land and possess the land. The word for inheritance and possession are used interchangeably uh, in the Hebrew language. In Jesus' case, his inheritance is planet Earth. His kingdom, the millennial kingdom, uh, his possession will be planet Earth. Uh, this is what we call synonymous parallelism in Hebrew, in which they didn't have rhyming to do their poetry, but this is poetry. This was a song sung by the temple choir. And so uh, he's saying the same thing twice. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Now he says the same thing over again. And the ends of the earth for your possession. 
So what I'm doing there is trying to show you that possession and inheritance are the same thing, and they speak of his reward. Whole psalms about Jesus coming back to set up his kingdom. That's why at the end it says, All right, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Would rejoice and trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Okay, that was the first reference uh, in Hebrews. And I hope you can see the whole context of this is reward, inheritance, possession. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, I will be a father to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, here's the better name. Got that out of Psalm 2, my son. Gets that out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, son again. Now, what you have in 2 Samuel 7 is, again, highly significant because here we're into the great Davidic covenant. I will be his father. He shall be my son. Uh, notice this is spoken to David. Uh, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. This is the Davidic promise. Uh, this is a reward covenant. Uh, this is a reward for past obedience. If you go to Kings, you'll read that David was faithful uh, in all the matters concerning the commandments and statutes and ordinances of God, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And we all know what that was. And it says because of that, God gave him this promise, this covenant. So uh, this reward is not a piece of land. This reward is a dynasty. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A dynasty, uh, a kingdom. I will be his father, he shall be my son. So you have the adoption terminology again. You have the reward covenant referred to. All this in Hebrews 1. Now the Hebrews would have instantly recognized all this. We don't today because it's also foreign to our thinking and our uh, we don't talk in terms of reward covenants, Susan New Vassal covenants, things like that, but they did. The only reason for his going back to the Old Testament over and over and over and over to establish his points is he knew his readers knew this stuff. He knew they were familiar with it. Uh, he knew they camped on it, especially these people who were looking for a Messiah. Uh, these, are, that, that's a, these are both messianic promises, and they support the exaltation of the Son uh, at his ascension, being rewarded as a faithful son, a faithful servant, now becoming adopted as a son. Well, now he dips back to support the idea that he's the creator. Verse 6, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, this phrase right here, who makes his angels spirits. People uh, have been asked to speak on the first few words of Genesis at a church here uh, the first weekend of uh, January. Uh, the title is In the Beginning. Uh, but that's a big question. When was the beginning? Some people will say, well, uh, it was Genesis 1-1. 
Other people will say, well, it was uh, Job's 38 when he created the universe and uh, the angels shouted for joy. Well, uh, we know neither of those is true. Uh, scientists define time as cause and effect. Uh, if you have a cause and you, an effect, then they say that's time. Uh, and the beginning of time was not Genesis 1-1 or Job 38. Why? Because the angels existed before the universe was created. And the angels are created beings. So God, the efficient cause, created the angels, the effect, and time began before time as we count it in our universe. He made the angels, spirits, and his ministers at flame of fire. He was the creator, time before time. Uh, but to the Son, he says, now he's going back to his divinity. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Don't miss this, folks. Uh, really, if you forget everything else I've said, just noting, noticing this is, is worth it. Uh, when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and uh, you try to show them that Jesus was God from John chapter 1, uh, they'll pull out their watchtower translation and say he was a God. Uh, he wasn't the God. Well, don't open up John 1. That's too complicated to explain to him. Just go here. Verse 8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. It's the only place in all the New Testament where Jesus is directly called God. In fact, these scholars, grammarians, have a term for this. It's called nominative of address. And I'll never forget in my orals, I was asked to explain this, and I uh, said nominative of address. And Dan Wallace, who's the resident, one of the resident grammarians, said, put his fist on the table like this, wham, and said, that's right, he really was God, wasn't he? And I said, yes, uh, Dr. Wallace, he really was God and is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, as we go through this, I want you to keep your eye on, on this idea of kingdom. Every single quotation in this uh, catena of, of the exposition or all these verses stuck together is a messianic kingdom reference, except one. There's only one in this whole list. That's Psalm 104. All the rest of these speak of his ultimate reigning in that millennial kingdom. Every one of them. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness more than uh, your companions. And so here he is, God himself, divinity, scriptures supporting uh the fact that he is divine. In passing, we, we don't want to miss this word companions. It's a key word for this book. The Greek word here is metikus, but when we look in the best one-volume Greek dictionary for this word and its meaning, it means sharing or participating in. Now, our partner is, is even better. In fact, in the French, uh, they call this cointressant, which meant to be a, uh, an equal shareholder, or not an equal, a shareholder in a company. Uh, you, were a, you were a partner. It would be like a, uh, a limited partnership we might have today. Maybe you have a general partner, and that would be Jesus, and he has some limited partners, but he's got partners. Well, who are these partners? Well, if we go back uh, to uh, Psalm 45, which is his quoting, it's a marriage ceremony. It's, it's a wedding feast. 
And at the wedding feast, he has invited his closest friends. Uh, you might call them the groomsmen. Well, uh, as we go back to this word, we find that it's used over and over in the book of Hebrews uh, for you and me uh, as partners in this wonderful kingdom that God is going to have for us. Uh, time pressing, let's go on. And you in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, you will remain, they will grow old like a garment. You're going to fold them up. So he's going here to the end of the created world as we know when he folds it up just as he went to the beginning at one time. Right now he's sustaining it. Uh, he's the gluon. That's the word that they use for the strong nuclear force uh, that's holding the nucleus together. We've got the Gravity, the weakest force, electromagnetism, the second uh, weak force uh, that allows our wireless systems to work, Wi-Fi and everything. And then we have the weak nuclear force, which it helps us understand half-lives and radiation, all that stuff. But the strong nuclear force keeps the nucleus together, busts that nucleus, and busts enough of them, and you can have an atomic bomb, right? A lot of power there. He's the one holding that together. Uh, Colossians 1.18 says, In him all things hold together, consist. Well, at his word he created it, and at his word it's going to fold up. And finally, to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Finally, he's back to exaltation. He's come full circle using verses uh, from the Bible to support uh, from the Old Testament to support what he's saying. Psalm 110 has one very unique thing I want to show you if I can. It says here, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies to your footstool. The Lord said, and Shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Uh, he goes into the battle of Armageddon right here. Take a little more time to... He's going to execute kings in the day of his wrath. That's the battle of Armageddon. Fill the places with dead bodies. Then look at this. He's going to execute the heads of many countries. Every English translation I've ever read on this translates this heads, plural. The Hebrew is very clear on this. It's singular. It's rosh, singular. No debate. But they don't translate it singular because 99% of the people out there aren't dispensationalists. They don't believe in the Antichrist. They don't believe that Jesus will come back to the Battle of Armageddon. They don't believe he will execute the Antichrist. Uh, but that's what the Hebrew says here. Amazing stuff. What's God's message to you out of all this? Uh, he wants you to be a partaker. He wants you to be a sharer. Uh, shares in the company. He wants you to be his closest friend. He wants you to become a son. He, as we said when we started uh, in Hebrews 2, verse 10, was willing to suffer. It was fitting for him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's your destiny. Uh, that's why God created you. He didn't create you to come into heaven uh, waving your baby rattle. He created you to come in as a mature daughter, a mature son, uh, dressed in the robes of righteousness that he has 
uh, for you. And uh, you not only get the robes of the imputed righteousness of Christ, Revelation 19 says you get a wedding dress uh, made out of the righteous deeds of the saints. Uh, it's an exciting uh, prospect. It gives meaning to life. It gives a transcendent cause to live for that enables you to go through all kinds of suffering uh, in this world. As a matter of fact, through the suffering we are made perfect because quite often the suffering uh, peels us away from our attachment uh, to this world. I spent much of this week with my former youth pastor, actually, uh, and uh, he uh, got a virus two weeks ago, went to his heart, and now his heart is, is all but quit. They moved him down to St. Luke's in Houston. Uh, they're going to hold him there until they can find a heart transplant. If that doesn't happen, they'll have some sort of artificial device. He's 47 years old. That's suffering, folks. This is a guy who's a foster parent, uh, has three kids of his own, has adopted two more, and has had in the last 15 years I've known him probably 30 kids, maybe 50, go through his home. My, my, my. There's only one way to even begin to grapple with that kind of suffering. It's through the book of Hebrews. It's through the world to come. It's through what the second Adam is going to do in that millennial reign and in the new Jerusalem. And it's his invitation and it's his desire and his greatest wish for you and I to enter that. And when you live for that, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you have a transcendent cause, something higher, a higher purpose that can enable you to go through the many nonsensical things that happen to us on this earth. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.